0: Hello and welcome back to What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for KFF Health News, and I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping early this week on Wednesday, September 27th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this, so here we go. We are joined today via video conference by Rachel Rubine of the Washington Post. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Sandia Raman of CQ Roll Call. Good morning. And Sarah Carlin Smith of the Pink Sheet. Hi, everybody. Later in this episode, we'll have my KFF Health News NPR Bill of the Month interview with Samantha Liss. This month's bill is literally one that followed a patient to his family after his death. But first, the news. I want to start with Medicaid this week. North Carolina, which approved but didn't fund its Medicaid expansion earlier this year, approved a budget this week that will launch the expansion starting December 1st. That leaves just 10 states that have still not expanded the program to mostly low-income adults since the Affordable Care Act made it possible in, checks notes, 2014. (laughs) Any other holdout states on the horizon? Florida is a possibility, right, Rachel?
1: Yes, there's only technically three states that can do ballot measures. Now, North Carolina, I believe, was the first state to actually pass through the legislature since Virginia in 2018. A lot of the most recent states, seven kind of conservative-leaning states, instead pursued the ballot measure path. In Florida, advocates have been sort of eyeing a 2026 ballot measure, but the one issue in Florida is that they need a 60% threshold to pass any constitutional amendment. So that is pretty, pretty high and would take a lot of voter support. And they would need a constitutional amendment to expand Medicaid? A lot of the states have been going the constitutional amendment route in terms of Medicaid in recent years, because what they found was some legislatures would come back and sort of try and change it. But if it's a constitutional amendment, they weren't able to do that. But a lot of the holdout states don't have ballot measure processes
2: where they can do this, like Alabama, Georgia, et cetera. Kind of just echoing Rachel into that that this one has been interesting just because it had come through the legislature, and even with North Carolina, it was it's been something that we've been kind of eyeing for a few years, and that you know they'd, they'd gone a little bit of the way, a little bit of the way a few times, and it was kind of the the kind of gettable one within the ones that hadn't expanded and.
0: The ones we have left, there's just really not been much, much progress at all. I would say North Carolina, like Virginia, had a Democratic governor that ran on this and a Republican legislature or a largely Republican legislature. Hence the continuing standoff. It took both states a a long time to get to where they had been trying to go. And you're saying the rest of the states are not split like that.
2: Yeah, I think it'll be a much more difficult a hill to climb, especially when, you know, in the past we had like more incentives to expand with some of the previous like COVID relief laws and they still didn't bite. So it's going to be more difficult to, to get those.
0: No one's holding their breath for Texas to expand. Anyway, while North Carolina will soon start adding people to its Medicaid rolls, the rest of the states are shedding enrollees who gain coverage during the pandemic but may no longer be eligible. And that unwinding has been bumpy, to say the least. The latest bump came last week when the Department of Health and Human Services revealed that more than half a million people, mostly children, had their coverage wrongly terminated by as many as 30 states. It seems a computer program failed to note that even if a parent Income was now too high to qualify, that same income could still leave their children eligible. Yet the entire family was being kicked off because of the way the structure of the program worked. I think the big question here is not that this happened, but that it wasn't noticed sooner. It should have been obvious. Children's eligibility for Medicaid has been higher than adults since at least the 1980s. Um, this unwinding has been going on since this spring. How is this only being discovered now? It's September, it's the end of September.
1: Yeah, I mean, this was something advocates have been closely watching. This have been ringing the alarm bells for a while. And then it took time. CMS had put something out. I believe it was roughly two weeks before they actually kind of then had the roughly half a million children regain coverage. They had put out, uh, OK, well, we're exploring which states and lots of reporters were like, OK, well, which state is this an issue So, yeah, the process seemed like it it took some time here.
0: I know CMS has been super careful. I mean, I think they're trying not to politicize this because, you know, they've been very careful not to name states. And in in many cases who they know have been wrongly dropping people. Um, uh, I guess they're trying to keep it as as apolitical as possible. But I think there are now some advocates who worried that maybe CMS is being a little too cautious.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think from the other side, too, if you talk to state officials, they're also trying to be really cautious and not criticize CMS. So it seems like both sides are not wanting to to go there. But I mean, some Democrats in Congress have been critical
0: of how the effort has gone. Yeah. And of course, if the government shuts down, as seems likely at the end of this week, that's not going to make this whole process any easier, right? The states will still get to do what the states are doing. Their shutdown efforts or their requalification efforts are not federally funded, but the people at CMS are.
2: Yeah, that'll just throw another thorn in in this as we're, you know, getting very, very likely headed towards a shutdown at this point on the 27th. So, I think that'll be another barrier for them, regardless. And I mean, most CMS money isn't even affected by the yearly budget, anyways, because it's mandatory funding. But that'll be a barrier for sure.
0: So speaking of the government shutdown, uh, it still seems more likely than not that Congress will fail to pass either any of the 12 regular spending bills or a temporary measure to keep the lights on when the fiscal year ends at midnight Sunday. That would lead to the biggest federal shutdown since 2013, when fun fact, the shutdown was an attempt to delay the rollout of the Affordable Care Act. What happens to health programs if the government closes? It's it's kind of a big, confusing mess, isn't it?
1: Um, yeah, well, what we know that would definitely continue in, in the short term is Medicare, Medicaid, Obamacare's federal insurance marketplace. Medicaid has funding for at least the next three months. And, you know, there's research developing vaccines and therapeutics that HHS, they put out their kind of contingency. What happens if there's a shutdown plan? But there's, there's some things that, you know, kind of the White House and others are kind of trying to point to that would be impacted, like, you know, the National Institute of Health may not be able to enroll new patients in clinical trials. The FDA
0: may need to delay some food safety inspections, et cetera. Sarah, I actually forgot because, you know, also fun fact, the FDA is not funded through the rest of the that includes the Department of Health and Human Services. It's funded through the Agriculture Bill. So even though HHS wasn't part of the last shutdown in 2018 and 2019, because HHS funding bill had already gone through, the FDA was sort of involved, right?
3: Right. So FDA is lumped with the USDA, the Agriculture Department, um, for the purposes of congressional funding, which is always fun for a health reporter who has to follow both of those bills. But... um FDA is always kind of a unique one with shutdown because so much of their funding now is user fees, particularly for specific sections. So the tobacco part of FDA is almost 100% funded by user fees. So they're not really impacted by a shutdown. Similarly, a lot of drug, medical device applications and so forth also are totally funded by user fees. So their reviews keep going. That said, the way user fees are, they're really designated to specific activities so where there isn't user fees and it's not considered, you know, a critical kind of public health threat, things do shut down, like Rachel mentioned, a lot of food work and inspections and even on the drug and medical device side, some activities that are related that you might think would continue don't get funded.
0: So, Sandy, is there is there any possibility that this won't happen and that if it does happen that it will get resolved anytime soon? At, at this point, I don't think that
2: that we can <laughs> navigate it. So last night, the Senate put out the bipartisan proposal for continuing resolution that you would attach as an amendment to the FAA, the Federal Aviation Reauthorization. And so that would temporarily extend a lot of the health programs through November 17th. The issue is that it's not something that if they, you know, are able to pass that this week, they'd still have to go to the House. And the House has been pretty adamant that they want their own plan and that the CR that they were interested in had a lot more immigration measures and, and things there. And the House right now has been busy attempting to pass this week four of the 12 um, appropriations bills. And even if they finish the four that they did, that they have on their plate, that would still mean going to the Senate. And Biden has said he would veto those. And it's still not the 12. So. At this point, it is almost impossible for us to not at least see something short-term. But whether or not that's long-term is, is I think, a question mark in, in all the folks that I have been talking to about this right now.
0: So. Yeah. We will know soon enough what's going to happen. Well, meanwhile, because there's not enough already going on, COVID is back. Well, that depends how you define back. But there's a lot more COVID going around than there was, enough so that the federal government has announced a new round of free tests by mail. And there's an updated covid vaccine. I think we're not supposed to call it a booster, but its rollout has been bumpy. And this time it's not the government's fault. That's because this year the vaccine is being distributed and paid for by mostly private insurance. And while lots of people probably won't bother to get vaccinated this fall, the people who do want the vaccine are having trouble getting it. What's happening and. How were insurers and providers not ready for this? We'd been hearing the updated vaccines would be available in mid-September for months, Sarah. I mean, they really literally weren't ready.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's not really clear why they weren't ready other than perhaps they felt they didn't need to be to some degree. I mean, normally, I know I was reading actually because we've also recently gotten RSV vaccine approvals. Normally, they actually have almost like a year, I think, to kind of add vaccines to plans and schedules and so forth. And pandemic COVID-related laws really shorten the time for COVID. So they should have been prepared and ready. They knew this was coming and people are going to pharmacies or going to a doctor's appointment and they're being told, well, we can give you the vaccine, but your insurance plan sort of isn't set up to cover it yet, even though technically you should be. There seems like there's also been lots of kind of distribution issues where, again, people are going to sites where they booked appointments and they're saying, oh, actually, we ran out. (laughs) They're trying another site. They've run out. So it's sort of giving people a sense of the difference of what happens when sort of the government kind of shepherds an effort and everybody, things are a bit simplified because You don't have to think about which site does your insurance cover. There is a program for people who don't have insurance now who can get vaccine for free. But again, you're more limited in where you can go. There's not these big free clinics that's really impacting childhood vaccinations because, again, a lot of children can't get vaccinated at the pharmacy. So I think people are being reminded of what normal looked like pre-COVID. And they're realizing, you know, maybe we didn't like this so much after all. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's not so efficient either. All the people said, oh, the private sector could do this so much more efficiently than the government. And it's like, mm, we're ending up with pretty much the same issues, which is the people who really want the vaccine are chasing around and not finding it. And, you know, I, I know HHS Secretary Becerra went and had this event at a, at a D.C. pharmacy where he was going to get his vaccine And I think the event was intended to encourage people to go get vaccinated, but it happened right at the time when the big front surge of people who wanted to get vaccinated couldn't find the vaccine. I think
3: that's a big concern because we've had such low uptake of booster or, you know, additional COVID shots over the past (laughs) couple of years. So the people who are sort of the most go-getters, the ones who really want the shots are having trouble and feeling a bit defeated. What does that mean for the people that are less motivated to get it, who may not make a second or third attempt if it's not easy? We sort of know, and I think public health folks kind of beat the drum that sort of just like meeting people where they are, making it easy, easy, easy is really how you get these things done. So it's hard to see how we can improve uptake this year when it's become more complicated, which I think is, you know, going to be a big problem moving forward.
0: Right. I mean, and clearly these are issues that will be ironed out probably in the next couple of weeks. But I think what people are going to remember who are less motivated to go get their vaccines is, oh, my God, you know, these people I know tried to get it and it took them weeks and they showed up for their appointment and they couldn't get it. And it's like it was just too much trouble and I can't deal with it. And there's also I think you, you mentioned that there's an issue with, you know, kids who are too young to get the vaccine, too. Right.
3: Right. Still, I think people forget that you have to be six months to get the vaccine if you're under three you basically cannot get in a pharmacy so you have to get in a doctor's office but a lot of people are reporting online their doctor's office sort of stopped providing COVID vaccines so they're having trouble just finding where to go it seems like the distribution of shots for younger children has also been a bit slower as well and again this is a population where just even primary series uptake has been a problem And people are in this weird gap now where if you can't get access to the new COVID vaccine, but your kid is eligible, the old vaccine isn't available. So you're sort of in this like gap where your kid might not have had any opportunity yet to get COVID vaccine and there's nothing for them. And, you know, I think we forget sometimes that there are lots of groups of people that are still very vulnerable to this virus, including you know newborn babies who haven't been exposed at all and haven't gotten a chance to get vaccinated.
0: Yeah. So this is obviously still something that, that we need to continue to look at. Well, meanwhile, mask mandates are making a comeback, albeit a very small one, and they are not going over well. I've personally been wearing a mask lately because I'm traveling later this week and next and don't want to get sick, at least not in advance. But masks are, if anything, even more controversial and political than they were during the height of the pandemic. Does public health have any ideas that could help reverse that trend or are there any other things we could do? I've seen some plaintive complaints that, you know, we've not done enough about, you know, ventilation. That could be something where it could help even if people won't or don't want to wear masks. I mean, I'm, I'm surprised that vaccination is still pretty much our only defense. I think with masks, one thing that's
3: made it hard for different parts of the health system and like lower level kind of state public health departments to deal with masks is that the CDC recommendations around masking are pretty loose at this point. So the New York Times had a good article about the hospitals and masking and the kind of guidance around triggers they've given them is so vague. It's hard for they kind of are left to make their own decisions. The CDC actually still really hasn't. And these, the value of KN95 and N95 respirators over surgical masks. So I think it becomes really hard for those lower level institutions to sort of push for something that is kind of controversial politically. And a lot of people are just tired of it when they don't have the support of those bigger <laughs> institutions saying it. And some of just even figuring out like levels of the virus and when that should trigger masking is much harder to track nowadays because so much of our systems and data reporting is off. So, right, we have this sense we're in somewhat of a surge now, hospitalizations are up and so forth. But again, it's a lot easier for people to make these decisions and figure out when to pull triggers when you have clear data that says, you know, this is what's going on now. And to some extent, we're, again, like there's a lot of evidence that points to a lot of COVID going around now, but we don't have that sort of hard data that makes it a lot easier for people to justify policy choices.
1: You just brought up ventilation and it took time one for, you know, kind of some scientists uh, to realize that, you know, COVID is also spread through ultra tiny particles, but it also took after that a while for the White House to kind of pivoted strategy to stress ventilation measures in addition to masks and, and face covering. So, you know, a, a lot of places are are still kind of behind on, you know, having better like ventilation in an office or, you know, kind
0: of wherever you're going. Yeah. I mean, one would think that improving ventilation in schools would improve not only not spreading COVID, but not spreading all of the, you know, respiratory viruses that keep kids out of school and that make everybody sick during the winter, during the school year.
2: I was going to piggyback on something Sarah said, which was, you know, about how the CDC doesn't have like, clear benchmarks on when there should be like a guideline for what is, you know, high transmission in a hospital for them to, to reinstate, you know, a mask mandate or whatever. But there's also like nuance to consider there. You know, there's within that there's, is there a partial masking rule? which does like the healthcare staff have to wear them versus the patients? And, you know, does that have enough benefit on its own if it's only required to one versus the other? I mean, I, I know that a lot of folks have called for like more strict rules with that. But then there's also the folks that are worried about The backlashes. this has gotten so politicized, you know, how many different medical providers have talked about angst at them, like attacks at them over, over like the politicization of COVID. So there's there's so many things that are intertwined there that it's
3: tough to institute something. I think the other thing is we keep forgetting like this is not all about COVID. We've learned a lot of lessons about public health. That could be applicable, like you mentioned, in schools beyond COVID. So if you're in the emergency room, you know, because you have cancer and you need to see a doctor right away and you're sitting next to somebody with RSV or the flu, it would also be beneficial to have that patient wearing a mask because if you have cancer, you do not need to add one of these infectious diseases on top of it. So it's just been interesting, I think, for me to watch because it seemed like at different points in this crisis, we were sort of learning things beyond COVID for how it could improve our healthcare system and public health. But for the most part, it seems like we just kind of gone back to the old ways without really thinking about what we could incorporate from this crisis that would be beneficial in the future.
0: I feel like we've lost the public in public health, that everybody is sort of, you know, it's every individual for him or herself and the heck with everybody else, which is exactly the opposite of how public health is supposed to work. But perhaps we will bounce back. Well, moving on, the Biden administration via the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the CFPB, took the first steps last week to ban medical debt from credit scores, which which would be a huge step for potentially tens of millions of Americans whose credit scores are currently affected by medical debt. Last year, the three major credit bureaus, Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion, agreed not to include medical debt that had been paid off or was under $500 on their credit reports. But that still leaves lots and lots of people with depressed scores that make it more expensive for them to buy houses or rent an apartment, or even in some cases to get a job. This is a really big deal if medical debt is going to be removed from people's credit reports, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I I think that was an interesting move when they announced that this week, because the the CFPB had mentioned that, you know, in a report they did last year, like 20% of Americans have said that they have medical debt and doesn't necessarily appear on all credit reports. But like you said, it can. And having that financial stress while going through a health crisis or someone in your family going through a health crisis is layers upon layers of of difficulty. And they had also said in their report that medical billing data is not an accurate indicator of like whether or not you'll repay that debt compared to other types of credit. And, you know, it also has the layers of, you know, insurance disputes and medical billing errors and all that sort of thing. So this proposal that they have ends up being finalized as a rule. It could be a big deal because, you know, some states have been trying to do this on a state by state level, but still in pretty early stages in terms of a lot of states being on board. So this this can be a big thing for a a fifth of people.
0: Yeah, many people. I'm going to yeah. give a shout out here to my KFF Health News colleague, Noam Levy, who's uh, done a, an amazing project on all of this and I think helped sort of push this along. Well, while we are on the subject of the Biden administration and money in health care, the Federal Trade Commission is suing a private equity-backed doctors group, U.S. Anesthesia Partners, charging anti-competitive behavior, uh, that it's driving up the price of anesthesia services by consolidating all the big anesthesiology practices in Texas, among other things. Uh, FTC Chair Lina Khan said the agency, quote, will continue to scrutinize and challenge serial acquisitions, roll-ups, and other stealth consolidation schemes that unlawfully undermine fair competition and harm the American public. Uh, this case is also significant because the FTC is suing not just the anesthesia company, but the private equity firm that backs it, Welsh, Carson, Anderson, and Stowe, which is one of the big private equity firms in healthcare. Uh, is this the shot across the bow for private equity in healthcare that a lot of people have been waiting for? I mean, we've been talking about private equity in healthcare for three or four years now.
3: I, I think that's what the FTC is hoping for. They're saying not just that we're going after you know anti-competitive practices in healthcare. That I think they're making a clear statement that they're going after this particular type of funder, which we've seen is proliferated around the system. And, you know, I think this week there was a report from the government showing, you know, that CMS can't even track all the private equity ownership of nursing homes. So we know this isn't the only place where doctors practices being bought up by private equity has been seen as potentially problematic. So this has been a very sort of activist, I think aggressive FTC and healthcare in general in a number of different sectors. So I, I think they're, they're very deliberate with their actions and warnings.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we mostly think, those of us who have followed the FTC in healthcare, which gets pretty nerdy right there, usually think of sort of big hospital groups trying to consolidate or insurers trying to consolidate, you know, these, these huge mega mergers. But what's been happening a lot is these private equity companies have come in and, and bought up physician practices. And, you know, therefore, they become the only. Place. You can you know, the only providers of anesthesia are the only providers of emergency care, are the only you know providers of kidney dialysis are the only providers of nursing homes, and therefore they can set the prices. And those are not the level of deals that tend to come before the FTC. So I feel like this is the FTC saying, "See you, little people that are doing big things." We're we're coming for you too. Do we think this might dampen private equity's enthusiasm or is this just going to be a long, drawn out struggle?
2: I could see it being more of a long, drawn struggle because, you know, even if they're showing it as an example, there's just so many ways that this has been done in so many kind of sectors as you've seen. So I think it remains to be seen, you know, further down the line as this might happen in a few different ways to a few different folks and how that kind of plays out there. But-
3: It might take some time to get to the stage. I was going to say, it's always worth also thinking about just like the, the size and budget of the FTC in comparison to the amount of, you know, private actors like this throughout the health system. So, I mean, I think that's one reason sometimes why they do try and kind of use that grandstanding symbolic messaging because they can't go after every bad actor, you know, through that formal process, so they have to do the signaling in different ways.
1: I think probably as we've all learned as health reporters, it takes a really long time for there to be change in the
0: healthcare system. And I was just to say, one thing we know about people who are in healthcare to make money is that they are very creative in finding ways to do it. So whatever the rules are, they're going to find ways around them and we will just sort of keep playing this cat and mouse for a while. All right, well, finally this week, a story that probably should have gotten more attention. Uh, the White House last week announced creation of the first ever Office of Gun Violence Prevention to be headed by Vice President Kamala Harris. Its role will be to help implement the very limited gun regulation passed by Congress in twenty. 2022, and to coordinate other administration efforts to curb gun violence. I know that this is mostly for show, but sometimes don't you really have to elevate an issue like this to get people to pay attention, to to point out that maybe you're trying to do something? Talk about things that have been hard for the government to do over the last couple of decades. It
1: took Congress a long time to then pass a new gun package, which the shooting in Uvalde last year ended up catalyzing, and, you know, Congress actually got something done, which was, you know, more limited than, you know, some gun safety advocates wanted. But it does take a lot to to get gun safety reform across the finish line.
0: So, I mean, I know. I mean, it's one of those issues that the public really, really seems to care about and that the government really, really, really has trouble doing. I've been covering this so long, I remember when they first banned gun violence research at HHS back in the mid-1990s. That's how far back I go, that they were actually doing it and the the gun lobby said, no, 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 we don't really want these studies that say that, you know, if you have a gun in the house, it's more likely to injure somebody and not necessarily the bad guy. Um, They were very unhappy and it took until three or four years ago for that to be allowed to be funded. So Maybe the idea that they're elevating this somewhat to at least wave to the public and say, we're trying, <laughs> we're fighting hard, we're not getting very far, but we're definitely trying. So I guess we will see how that comes out. All right, well, that is this week's news. Now we will play my Bill of the Month interview with Sam Liss, and then we'll come back with our extra credits. I am pleased to welcome to the podcast my KFF Health News colleague, Samantha Liss, who reported and wrote the latest KFF Health News NPR Bill of the Month installment. Welcome. Hi. This month's bill involves a patient who died in the hospital, right? Tell them who he was, what he was sick with, and about his family.
4: Yeah, so Kent Reynolds died after a lengthy hospital stay in February of 2022. He was actually discharged after complications from colon cancer and died in his home. And his widow, Eloise Reynolds, was left with a series of complicated hospital bills. And she reached out to us seeking help after she couldn't figure them out. And her and Kent were married for just shy of 34 years. They lived outside of St. Louis, and they have two adult kids.
0: So Eloise Reynolds received what she assumed was the final hospital bill after her husband died, which she paid, right?
4: Yeah, she did. She paid of what she thought was the final bill for $823. But a year later, she received another bill for $1,100. And she was confused as to why she owed it. And um, no one could really give her a sufficient answer when she reached out to the hospital system or the insurance company.
0: Can a hospital even
4: send you a bill a year after you've already paid them? You know what? After looking into this, we learned that, yeah, they actually can. There's not much in the way that stops them from coming after you, demanding more money months or even years later.
0: So this was obviously part of a dispute between the insurance company and the hospital. What became of the second bill, the the year later bill?
4: Yeah. After Eloise Reynolds took out a yardstick and went line by line through each charge and she couldn't Find a discrepancy or anything that had changed, she reached out to KFF Health News for help. And she was still skeptical about the bill and and didn't want to pay it. And so when we reached out to the health system, they said, actually, you know what? This is a clerical error. She does not owe this money. And it sort of left her even more frustrated because as she explained to us, she says, I think a lot of people would have ended up paying this additional amount.
0: So what's the takeaway here? What do you do if you suddenly get kind of a a bill that comes what seems out of nowhere?
4: The experts we talked to said Eloise did everything right. She was skeptical. She compared, most importantly, the bills that she was getting from the hospital system against the EOBs that she was getting from her insurance company.
0: The explanation of benefits form.
4: That's right, the explanation of benefits. And she was comparing those two against one another to help guide her on what she should be doing. And because those were different between the two of them, she was left even more confused. I think folks that we spoke to said, yeah, she did the right thing by pushing back and demanding some explanations.
0: So, I guess the ultimate lesson here is if you can't get satisfaction, you can always write to us.
4: Yeah, you know, I hate to say that in a way because that's a hard solution to scale for uh, most folks. But yeah, I mean, I think it points to just how confusing our healthcare system is. Eloise seemed to be a pretty savvy healthcare consumer, and she even couldn't figure it out. And she was pretty tenacious in her pursuit of making phone calls to both the insurance company and the hospital system. And I think when she couldn't figure that out and she finally turned to us
0: asking for help. So, well, another lesson learned. Samantha List, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. Hey, what the health listeners? You already know that few things in healthcare are ever simple. So, if you like our show, I recommend you also listen to Trade Offs, a podcast that goes even deeper into our costly, complicated, and often counterintuitive healthcare system. Hosted by longtime healthcare journalist and friend Dan Gornstein, TradeOffs digs into the evidence and research data behind healthcare policies and tells the stories of real people impacted by decisions made in C suites, doctors' offices, and even Congress. Subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Okay, we're back. It's time for our extra credit segment. That's when we each recommend a story we read this week we think you should read too. As always, don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links on the podcast page at kffhealthnews.org and in our show notes on your phone or other mobile device. Sarah, you were the first to choose this week, so you get to go first.
3: Sure, I looked at a story in the Los Angeles time, California workers who cut countertops are dying of an incurable disease by Emily alpert Reyes and Sydney Carcamo. Hopefully I didn't mispronounce your name. They wrote a really fascinating but sad story about people working in an industry where they're cutting engineered stone countertops for people's kitchens and so forth and because of the materials in this engineered product they're inhaling particles that is basically giving people at very young age incurable and deadly lung disease and it's an interesting public health story about sort of the lack of protection in place for some of the most vulnerable workers it seems like this industry is often comprised of immigrant workers some who kind of you know essentially go to like outside a Home Depot, the story suggests, or something like that, and kind of get hired for day labor. So they just don't have the kind of power to sort of advocate for protections for themselves. And it's just also an interesting story to think about. As consumers, I think people are not always aware of the costs of the products they're choosing and how that then translates back into labor and the health of the people producing it. So really fascinating, sad. Piece.
0: Another product that you know you have to sort of—I remember when when they first were having the stories about you know the, the dust and microwave popcorn uh, injuring people. Sandhya, why don't you go next?
2: So my extra credit this week is from NPR and it's by Meg Anderson and it's called "One in Four Inmate Deaths Happen in the Same Federal Prison. Why? This is really interesting. It's a sto- investigation that looks at the deaths of individuals who died either. While serving in federal prison or right after, and they looked at some of the Bureau of Prisons data and it showed that, you know, 4,950 people had died in custody over the past decade but more than a quarter of them were all in one correctional facility in Butner, North Carolina. And the investigation found out that you know the patients here and nationwide are dying at a higher rate and that incarcerated folks are not getting care for serious illnesses or very delayed care until it's too late. And the Butner facility has a medical center, but a lot of times the inmates are being transferred there when it was already too late. And then it's um, really uh, sad that the number of deaths is is just increasing and just kind of what can be done
0: to alleviate them. So Yeah, it was a, it was a really interesting story. Rachel. My extra cut
1: at the headline is, A Decades-Long Drop in Teen Bursts, is Slowing in Advocates' Worry of Reversals Coming by Katherine Sweeney from WPLN in partnership with KFF Health News. And she writes about the national teen birth rate and how it's declined dramatically over the past three decades, and that essentially it's still dropping, but preliminary data released in June from the CDC shows that that descent may be slowing. And Catherine had talked to doctors and other service providers and advocates who essentially expressed concern that the full CDC data set released later this year Can show a rise in teen births, particularly um, in southern states, and she talked to experts who kind of pointed to several factors here, including the Supreme Court's decision overturning Roe v. Wade, intensifying political pushback against sex education programs, and the impact
0: of the pandemic on youth mental health. Yeah, there have been so many stories about the decline in teen births, which seemed mostly attributable to them being able to get contraception. To get teens not to have sex was less successful than getting teens to have safer sex, so... We'll we'll see if that uh, tide is turning. Well, I'm uh, still on the the subject of health costs this week. My story is a study from JAMA Internal Medicine that was conducted in part by Shark Tank panelist Mark Cuban, for whom health price transparency has become something of a crusade. This study is of a representative sample of 60 hospitals of different types conducted by researchers from the University of Texas, and it assessed whether the online prices posted for two common procedures – vaginal childbirth and a brain MRI were the same as the prices given when a consumer called to ask what the price would be. And surprise, mostly they were not. And often the differences were very large. In fact, to quote from the study, for vaginal childbirth, there were five hospitals with online prices that were greater than $20,000, but telephone prices of less than $10,000. The survey was done in the summer of 2022, which was a year and a half after After hospitals were required to post their prices online, at some point you have to wonder if anything is going to work to help patients sort out the prices that they are being charged for their health care. Really eye-opening study. All right. That is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our amazing engineer, Francis Ying. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at health all one word, at kff.org. Or you can still find me at x at jrovner. Sarah? I'm at Sarah Carlin or at Sarah Carlin Smith. Sandia At Sandia writes Rachel? at rachel underscore rubine. We will be back in your feed next week. Until then, be healthy.